I don't know, man. I don't know anymore. Hey, it's Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I talk to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm looking right at you, right in the eyes. Thanks for listening. Say where Darby makes her return to the podcast, her, her new book, Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism, the kind of book you want to read to your kids before bed, James and the Giant Peach, Sisters in Hate. It's an incredible book, bleak as hell, but incredible, beautifully written, tightly written, no fuss, no boss, she tells it like it is. Lean is how I like to describe how this thing is written. Dives into the people who are soft so they can say hard things as one of Sayward's man, main characters. Not man characters. Main characters. Says, keep the conversation going on Twitter. At CNFPod. Why? Because I'm wasting no time this week. This conversation is raw. Unedited. Didn't have the time to do it, so whatever. If I sound like a moron, well, that, you know why now. And we're getting right into it because I'm going to spare you my usual bullshit for this week. So here we go. A one and a two and a riff. Ah. Now, I know like you and your husband are both writers and you both had books come out. Um, so what what has that been like, you know, the fact that the two of you had books come out at roughly the same time? Yeah, well, actually, his book isn't out yet. It's coming out October oh, 13th. Oh. Yeah, um, I just promote it along. <laughs> like, I'm promoting it constantly. <laughs> so you might, <laughs> you have very good reason to be confused. I don't think that people normally promote books this far in advance, but I'm just so excited <laughs> that I'm like, constantly talking about it online. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we were certainly writing the books at the same time. Uh, and we, we've been together a long time, uh, over a decade. And uh, he's been writing full time since... 2011. Um, and, you know, editing is my, my full-time job. And then I started working on this book about three and a half years ago. Um, and uh, it's been it's been interesting. I mean, we did not know that our books were going to come out at the same time, roughly. Uh, initially, we actually thought they were going to come out the same month, which would have been insane. Um, but then, uh, you know, they were spaced out more like more like three months. Um, I think one of the most interesting things about the whole process has been the fact that, you know, I wrote a nonfiction book, obviously, and my husband writes fiction. So he has a novel coming out. And just in parallel, seeing how different those processes are, uh, you know, for instance, him slaving away to perfect a manuscript before even sending it to, uh, you know, agents and then publishers versus, you know, me throwing together a proposal and, <laughs> and being like, I promise I can pull this off. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the similarities, like he had an incredible copy editor, um, and you know, the kind of copy editor, frankly, you know, every magazine should have. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been interesting. Um, and, you know, his, his book will be coming out at a pretty crazy time politically. Uh, and mine came out at a very crazy time from a, I mean, I guess it'll still be crazy when it, the public health stuff will still be crazy in October, but, um, but yeah, I mean, nobody expects to birth a book into the world when there's so much chaos. <laughs> 
In what ways was it helpful to have uh, to have your husband, Corey? Correct, is his yeah, name? Corey Noble. Yep. yep. Corey. So, so in what way? What was that like to be both writing books at the same time, and maybe even the fact that he was writing fiction and you were doing nonfiction? Like, how did how did maybe that that piggyback off off each other as you were you know creating both of your works? Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, I, I learned way more from him than the other way around, uh, especially because he has been doing this for so much longer. You know, he has figured out how to have a day job, so to speak. I mean, he's an independent contractor, uh, but he, you know, has other people he is responsible toward um, and has those hours of his day. But he's always been extraordinarily disciplined about building a writing schedule for himself and being so committed to it. And so, you know, I was certainly when I, uh, you know, especially as I got into the real thick of book writing, as opposed to research for the book, uh, I, you know, he, he was very supportive in helping me figure out a schedule and helping me stick to it. And, you know, reminding me that if I had said, these are the hours when I'm going to be working on the book, not to beat myself up when I wasn't in those hours. Um, because I think, you know, a book can be this all consuming, thing. <laughs> and, uh, and when you set a schedule for yourself, you know, part of that is to actually, uh, you know, have the time to write, but then the flip side of that is to, to not be mad at yourself that you're not spending all of your time writing. So, um, so I think I definitely learned a lot from him just from the standpoint of how to structure my days. Uh, and then certainly, you know, we each read each other's work and, uh, and that was massively helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not a fiction writer. And so, you know, reading his book, uh, I went through it kind of like a nonfiction editor um, and uh, and then vice versa, you know. So I was probably hopeful for him with things about, you know, consistency or uh, uh, structure to a certain extent. Um, and then with me, you know, he was so helpful with the prose um, and you know, pointing out where I was overreaching or not saying enough. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a very, uh, like organic kind of process relationship. I don't know. We, uh, I, I can imagine a situation where our house could have been a very stressful place while we were <laughs> both trying to, to finish this. And it, I mean, we certainly were stressed out, but, um, but not with each other, you know? Um, and I think that, we were also always really good about like, okay, we're going to sit down for lunch every day at the same time together. And, you know, at a certain time of night, we're going to stop working and, you know, just be together. And, uh, and I think that kind of having that other person to hold you accountable to those schedules was, was really, really helpful. And were you still editing the Atavis full time while you were writing your book and researching it? Yes. So um, I took three weeks <laughs> off. So essentially a long vacation um, to go to the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts uh, last August. And my book was actually, the manuscript was due in October. So the whole idea was kind of this like, you know, full on three weeks. I got off social media. Uh, I didn't check my work email. Uh, you know, nobody was allowed to call me during the day, <laughs> you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that was really the only time I took off. The rest of the time I was full on at the Atavist. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky the Atavist has been a remote operation for many years and we're owned by WordPress now, obviously. And um, the thing about WordPress is also entirely remote distributed. And so uh, 
one of the nice things was I didn't have an office that I had to go to from nine to five or 10 to six or whatever. Um, and so, you know, I could be flexible about saying, okay, I'm going to start my out of his work day a little later and work a little later. Um, you know, as long as I was getting the work done and getting the hours in, um, it didn't quite matter when they were. So, uh, I don't recommend working full time and writing a book. Um, it's very hard, (laughs) but, uh, but I was lucky in that my, you know, my job allowed me some flexibility just on a day-to-day basis so that I could, could make it work. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who who listen to this show, especially they have their their day job in like book dreams or like some other kind of dream. So it's like it's kind of it's kind of good to hear that someone who who I find is as accomplished as you is such a sharp editor and such a brilliant writer that you were able to, you know, thread that into your to your daily life and to build a practice around it. So I think it's inspiring for people to hear that. So how did you start? How did you fall into that? And into the right practice that allowed you to, you know, generate the research and then, of course, generate the pros that you needed to hit your deadlines while also holding down your full time job for the most part. Yeah, well, I I mean, you're very kind to say such nice things about me. I appreciate that. Um, And uh, I, I don't know, you know, initially. I just did, I was doing so much information gathering. Um, and so, you know, certainly that meant some on the ground reporting, like I had a reporting trip that I had to go on um, out to the Pacific Northwest. Um, but I actually remember, you know, I would spend my day reporting, being with, you know, the subjects that I, or the subject that I needed to see. And then I would come back to my hotel room and uh, I was actually editing a Josh Dean piece for The Atavist. And so I would sort of like, like switch gears, you know, from asking lots and lots of questions to uh, reading about North Korea um, and editing a piece about North Korea. Um, and I think that, you know, in an ideal world, that kind of situation, I actually remember my husband saying when I went on the trip, he's like, it's so cool. You're going to be reporting all day and then you're going to come back to the room and you're going to write and you're going to, you know, get everything down and reflect on the day. And that it was not like that at all <laughs> because I had this <laughs> other thing that I had to be doing when I got back to the, got back to my hotel. Um, and so uh, I think that, you know, more than anything, I just kept trying to remind myself that there's no precise right way to do this. Um, And that, you know, for instance, because that was my husband's kind of romantic idea of what nonfiction reporting is like, didn't mean that if I, you know, wasn't executing it according to that vision, that there was something wrong. Um, And so, you know, especially in the first couple of months of working on the book, I, you know, just did tons and tons of information gathering, you know, figured out a filing system on my computer where, um, you know, everything could go. Um, and, uh, at that point, you know, I really wasn't writing that much. Like I would write little snippets sometimes cause I would just, you know, have something that came to mind that I felt like I really needed to get down on paper or on my computer screen. Um, but I, you know, was just really focused on gathering as much as I, as much as I could. And then, um, when I actually started writing, and I would say this was like, I don't know, maybe like, let's see, book was due in October. This was probably like February, March. Um, and I actually benefited in this very strange way. I applied for a grant, which I did not get, um, but that's okay because the grant required me writing about a third of the book <laughs> um oh, because nice. you, you had to submit you know a certain number of pages or I, I forget exactly like what the parameters were um but my editor encouraged me to apply and so I kind of had to 
fly through writing a big chunk of the book. And I think that in some way, and that was definitely just, you know, I did out of his stuff most of the day. And then I was doing that on nights and weekends kind of thing. Um, And I think that that was beneficial, not only because it, you know, forced me to actually, you know, sit down and, and do the work, but I think it also showed me because I was so worried after all that information gathering that I was not going to be able to to put it all together, that I didn't have a coherent way of of saying what I wanted to say. And so in some ways, being under that pressure to, you know, get something together for the grant, which I mean, I obviously edited it before it ultimately became part of the book, but um I don't know. It, it was kind of the the push I needed to get outside of my own head um, and actually start start putting things down. Um, and and then after that, you know, a key thing the way the way the book is structured, it's divided up into three main parts. And so I tried to, you know, really take each one individually. Um, and I also and I gave this advice to somebody the other day, and it's something that I hadn't really thought of before I started working on the book, but I tried to work on whatever section, you know, uh, of, of a given, of one of the given thirds of the book, um, I felt most inspired to work on in a given day. So like if I woke up in the day before I had been writing, I don't know, you know, the chat, like the third chapter of section two or whatever. And I was like, but you know, I kind of just been thinking a lot about this thing that I know comes in section six, but I just want to do it. And I feel like that to me, I was following my own like sense of uh, uh, direction, but also uh, directions on following my own sense of direction. That's the most like tautological. I don't even know. Um, but anyway, what I mean, what I mean is like I was kind of following my following my gut almost. Like if 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 I had this feeling that like this was the thing I wanted to work on, that was that was better than trying to force yourself to work on something that you weren't feeling that day, if that makes sense. Um, right. And I found, yeah. I found that that also, especially, you know, when I was figuring out, um, okay, you know, I'm going to work three mornings a week from eight to 11 on the book and, you know, all day Sunday or whatever. I can't remember exactly what my schedule was. Um, and then, you know, out of his stuff the rest of the time. Um, I, I think that it made those chunks of time more enjoyable Uh, As opposed to, you know, if I felt like I was really stuck on something or there was a problem I was trying to untangle, um, I could come back to it. Uh, And and I think that, you know, everybody writes differently. I can imagine how that wouldn't work for some people who need to just kind of proceed according to plan. Um, But I kind of worked according to what I was feeling inspired to work on on a given day. Um, yeah. And so, and then the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts really was so amazing, uh, for me. Uh, I just, you know, got up every day, seven days a week (laughs) and went to my studio and worked all day, um, and had no interruptions. And I was able to knock out at that point, I had about two thirds of the, of the book written. So, um, that was hugely, hugely helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I do not recommend trying to work a full-time job and write a book. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but it, you know, it worked out. And I, I also think that, you know, my topic was pretty heavy, um, you know, white supremacy, light, light stuff. Um, yep, and, yep. <laughs> and I think that there was something to knowing that I had other creative things happening in my life. So working on out of the stories with, uh, with writers, 
um, that had nothing to do with my book topic. Like, I actually think it was probably almost cleansing to me intellectually to go and work on, you know, a story that had nothing to do with, you know, the women of white supremacy. Um, and so, I mean, maybe this is just me in retrospect being like blessing in disguise, but, but, um, but I, but I, I do think there's something, something to that. In what way has being, uh, has been, uh, in what way is being an editor at, at the Atavis and the kind of deep dives you do with these long form pieces, how has that strengthened your skill as a writer? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, you know, I, I got a really good piece of advice from my agent actually, uh, really early on when I had just submitted the book proposal, or I guess it had just been sold. Um, and he said, you know, a book is not magazine stories strung together, unless it's literally an anthology, right? Um, that a book needs to hang together in a way that, you know, a magazine story does, but at a drastically shorter length. And he works with a lot of um, magazine writers. And, uh, and he said, you know, they feel very comfortable in these like little you know, focusing on little bits, right? By little bits, obviously, I mean, thousands of words, but you know, the 5000 word feature or whatever. And he's like, and sometimes chapters can start to just feel like magazine articles that have, you know, been compiled into a book, basically. And, um, and so he he was like, so avoid doing that, basically. (laughs) Um, And so I definitely tried to avoid doing that. At the same time, I certainly think that, you know, working on long form pieces at the Atavist, gave me uh, a better instinct for structure. And I mean, I know my, my book, some people like one of the criticisms some people have um, uh, given about it is that, you know, they feel like the structure is actually a little loose. Um, I mean, I personally disagree, but that is their opinion. Um, but I, but I think that, you know, transitions, for instance, like transitions from one topic to another that would not, seemingly go together (laughs) um but needed to go together because you know when you started to unpack whatever that second topic was you realize how much it connects to the first um i think being an you know the editor of the atavist has really given me a better instinct for how to do things like that um and i mean certainly just for building a scene um and often you know building a scene where you wish you had more detail but you've got to you know uh, squeeze as much as you can out of out of relatively little, um, and that's something you know in out of in any magazine writing, but certainly in out of his stories, uh, we're always seeking to do. Um, so yeah, instinct for structure and transitions better with you know wringing the details out of things, um, and then I also think you know I think out of his readers are really smart; they don't need their hand held through everything. Um, you know, we are not a publication that has a nut graph that basically tells you what the story is going to be about. <laughs> um, I mean, some of our stories have that, but you know, we're, we're really telling a story and unpacking it as we go. Um, and you know, in a book you obviously have, or not every book, but my book and lots of books had an introduction where you kind of framed everything. Um, but at the same time, you know, realizing that like your reader is smart enough to you, you don't have to point out explicitly every connection, every way that something they just read, you know, has to do with something they read 50 pages ago. Um, 
And I think that um, that's one of the things I kind of love about Atavis stories is that you definitely need to read them start to finish because <laughs> you, you can't get the the highlight at the top, right? Um, and uh, and I think that, you know, books are similar. Um, and uh, yeah, so it also just made me, I mean, the Atavis, gosh, you know, I think the longest thing I've worked on at the Atavis was like 25,000 words. And wow. even even working on, and the book ended up being like 85,000, 80. Or something like that, between eighty and eighty-five thousand. And on the one hand, you know that's four times longer <laughs> than, uh, or not quite full time, four times longer um, than uh, the longest Atavis story. And yet, having dealt with that many words, definitely made you know eighty thousand words feel less daunting. Um, so, yeah. It, the structure was something I wanted to talk to you about. You have you know Corinna, Ayla, and Lana, and to me the there was like an escalation of intensity to mm-hmm. to the characters and 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 it maybe an escalation into into your approach to to them and i was wondering like what was your motivation behind behind the way you structured it how you decided to slot them aside beside each other and then you know what the calculus was among the your three big pieces yeah uh so structure was really hard in this book. Um, and it was actually something that my agent and I grappled with a lot, even in the proposal phase, because initially the idea was, so all three of these women, Karina, Ayla, and Lana, they were all born in early 1979, um, which was a nice synchronicity, but also not, it's not like I went looking for that. I just realized it as I was sorting out who I wanted my main subjects to be, um, that you know they had all been born uh, around around the same time. Um, and so originally the idea was like essentially telling intertwined stories. Um, but what I quickly, so, you know, from 1979 to the present, basically like using their collective arc, if you will. Um, and, uh, and what I realized the deeper I got into research was that it just didn't make sense. I mean, first of all, there were, you know, it's hard to intertwine stories that don't actually intersect. Um, uh, like in a physical, tangible way. Um, but then on top of that, I just felt like their stories each had such distinctive, distinct themes um, that tied into, you know, wider topics that I was interested in with regard to, you know, white supremacy in America. Um, and so I started to realize that they, their stories each represented different things thematically. And so maybe that was the way to to think about them was to let the stories build on each other as opposed to um, intersecting with each other. Um, And so the way I ultimately, I realize that sounds super ambiguous. So I'm going to try to be uh, more concrete as I explain each section, (laughs) but um, Mm -hmm. so Karina is the first one I talk about in the book and you could argue that she's the most extreme because she's just made a series of life choices that, the average person might find deeply weird. So she, um, in addition to being a neo-Nazi for a time, which that's, that's a lot. Um, she also is a professional embalmer. Um, she, uh, was an amateur bodybuilder. She was briefly, uh, paid to be in torture porn. She ultimately left neo-Nazism and is now a Muslim. And, the way I actually found Karina was an old Gawker article from like 2010 that had described her as the Renaissance woman from hell. 
And I wanted to put the most extreme person or the person who seemed the most extreme uh, early in the book because I wanted to try to beat back the notion that she was that she was somehow, you know, uh, unknowable um, or like so deeply unlike anyone you've ever met that uh, there's nothing to relate to there. And so I wanted to kind of put that up and knock it down. Um, and I hope I did in the book um, by, you know, showing the motivations for the various choices she's made um, and how they all certainly intersect with, uh, you know, the reasons that she she got into uh, neo-Nazism um, and then ultimately left the movement. Um, and she also provided, uh, because she's both, you know, radicalized and then ultimately de-radicalized. And so her story was a very helpful entry point to thinking about some building blocks of the book. So um, what is hate? What do we mean by hate when we say that? Um, what are the catalysts for radicalization? Um, what are the catalysts for de-radicalization? Um, kind of going through these, I don't know, it's almost like the fundamentals you're going to need for the rest of the book. Um, and then as I moved into Ayla and Lana, I wanted to, again, move from the person who readers might think of as the, the person they can't imagine knowing into the people that they can imagine knowing. So um, Ayla is married with six kids. Um, she used to be a feminist. She's She holds two degrees. She's, um, uh, you know, accomplished. Uh, and she also radicalized. And so, you know, looking at the reasons for that. Um, and also uh, she represents some themes that Karina doesn't in the same way. So for instance, the ways that what uh, motherhood uh, and sort of traditional classical white femininity um, and religion can be weaponized uh, by the far right. And then moving into Lana, um, who I think arguably is the person, at least to me, who felt the most familiar um, just in terms of, I feel like I know people like you. I know, I feel like I know people like you who have the same ambitions. Um, they just happen to you know, not be avowed white nationalists. Um, so, you know, she runs a business. Um, she's traveled the world. She, uh, you know, is married now and has two kids, but didn't rush into that. She, you know, is in some ways like more feminist than she would, would ever admit. Um, and she, rep she was a chance to really dive into um, the ways in which uh, white nationalism can, be an outlet for, um, you know, making a profit, frankly, uh, in the digital age. She runs a platform that uh, um, she and her husband make money off of. Um, and also, you know, kind of com competes would be the would be a strong word. But, uh, you know, they think of themselves as something along the lines of Infowars or another, you know, alt news site. Um, and so she was a chance to look at the internet, um, at disinformation on the internet and how that's deeply intertwined with white nationalism. But then also because of the rather prominent kind of position she has in the movement, not only because she has this platform, but because she's invited to speak at conferences, she's interviewed on other platforms and podcasts and things like that. Um, she was a chance to look back in time at other women who in various iterations of, uh, the far right in America have 
you know, inhabited similar roles as, you know, figureheads and organizers and um, communicators and all these different uh, things that I think they're, you know, women are often not given credit for um, in this space. Uh, So, so yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, they each definitely have their own arcs, each of the stories. But if you read them together, at least I hope, um, I feel like the structure subtly builds. And I do think gets it, it definitely got scarier to me. And I feel like I'm glad, glad to hear that you, you felt similar, that there's like an intensity that builds. Um, yeah. And I think part of that is because Karina's left the movement, Ayla and Lana have not. And so, you know, you're moving into stories of people who are still active. But then again, I think it's also this, this, um, this aspect of familiarity of, of seeing pieces of people, you know, um, in them. Uh, and I think that that, certainly, I mean, to me, was one of the scariest parts of, of doing this research. Yeah, because uh, what well, I would say with Ayla and Lana, it's like there's a more, there's sort of an, an insidious nature, like you don't know that could be your neighbor harboring these views that are just hiding under a rock. And since their guy, their guy won in 2016, it's like that rock got kicked. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, they're, they've been around the whole time. And now we're like, we're starting to see this, especially in Oregon, especially with a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests and the anti-protests. Yeah. We're finding just you know, just who the races are around here. And it's, uh, as you know from your reporting, Pacific Northwest is almost like a racial hotbed. Yeah, absolutely. And it has been for, for quite a long time. Um, yeah, I actually recommend this book. I've been recommending it to a lot of people, but um, it's called A Hundred Little Hitlers. And it's by this journalist, Eleanor Langer. And it's about the 1988 murder of an Ethiopian immigrant in Portland. Um, and it was like one of the worst hate crimes in the city's history and led to all of this really important, leg- uh, not legislation, um, important court proceedings um, uh, against uh, a very prominent white nationalist uh, on the West Coast. But her book is just a masterful uh work of reporting um and i think does a really nice job of capturing you know that particular moment in time in the pacific northwest but also you know the roots of some of the the radical right that exists out there did you consider putting karina last because she actually got out and in in a weird way that's kind of like a a good outro that of these three she got out and that's sort of a a good coda to the book like did that ever cross your mind Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that was something I talked about a lot actually with my, with my agent, my editor. And there were a couple of reasons I decided against it. Um, one is just that she ultimately got involved in the space, um, in the far right a couple of years before the other two women. Um, and so she had radicalized and de-radicalized before they were even really getting into it. And so, um, there was a kind of historical, issue there that if, you know, I had jumped back in time suddenly toward the end of the book, I can imagine how it would have felt uh, jarring. Um, And then uh, the other issues had to do with the fact that the the iteration of the far right that she was involved with, um, you know, predates the the so-called alt-right and is a much more... um, 
you know, classic version of digital neo-fascism. <laughs> um, you know, she found out about white nationalism on Stormfront, which has been on the internet since the mid-90s, um, and, you know, kind of ran with people who had been figures in the movement for uh, a couple of decades at that point, um, whereas Ayla and Lana sort of represent more of the far right as we know it, particularly like in the post-2016 era. Um, or that's not fair to say post-2016, because I think that, um, I would say maybe from like Dylan Roof onward, I feel like there's been this recognition of like this online ecosystem that nurtures these not just hateful, but, you know, wrong, like just factually wrong beliefs. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, you know, again, moving Karina behind that, I think would have, uh, there would have been so many things that Karina's story about history, that Karina's story um, elucidates that I would have had to build in some other way. Um, so uh, the book though does originally um, I had, and I know you've read it, but um, uh, I have something in the conclusion that was originally in the Karina section. And I decided to move that to the conclusion with the, on the advice of a couple of people who read the book. Um, so like her story picks up in a sense at the end, um, just a little bit, but, um, but there was like one piece of her story that, uh, that I wanted to keep for the end. Um, this is, it's so funny talking about structure because it's also like just something that I hemmed and hawed and cried and, <laughs> you know, uh, berated myself over trying to figure it out. Um, and I will say this, like, I kind of resisted this structure for a long time because I was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm not being explicit enough or I'm not, um, uh, I don't know, not giving as many like signposts along the way or whatever. Um, and I kept coming back to it because it was the one that felt most intuitive um, and felt like it would allow me to say the most that I wanted to say. Um, and I think that, you know, one you, you should definitely kill your darlings, right, in writing. But at the same time, like, sometimes if your gut is telling you that, like, this is the way to proceed, um, you have to follow that. Um, and and I did. And I mean, again, I think it works, but I certainly respect people's opinions who say that it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, early on, you, you write uh, that the movement is based largely on need, narrative, and network, yeah. and then this quest for personal significance. And that ties in to all three of them so well. So maybe you can speak to that as really something that this book really hinges on and hangs on. Yeah, no. Um, so that comes from uh, a study. I actually read it when I was out on the West coast for that, for that research trip. I was in a taco restaurant reading about white supremacy. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's like a whole, there's just, you could probably like plot like various restaurants and bars where like, I've printed out something that I needed to read or, you know, looking at my notes um, by myself and then like having some, having some good food. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's an article um, that basically looks at extremism broadly speaking. So not, you know, not just the far right, but extremism in, in any number of directions and cultures and whatnot. Um, and they boil it down to say that essentially the drivers um, of radicalization are needs. So if you think of it as everybody has needs, right? I mean, we have needs to eat, sleep, all these different things, but then we also have these more complicated needs of, 
needing to believe in something, needing to feel like we matter, needing to feel like we have human connection, um, you know, depending on levels of narcissism, like, you know, a need to, uh, to be superior to. Um, and essentially what these researchers say is that um, with extremists, there's a need that becomes outsize, basically. So, uh, you know, everybody has needs, some are bigger than others. And in extremists, there's a need that grows and grows and grows to, to the point that, you know, filling it uh, becomes the most important thing. And this is not necessarily conscious, to be clear. You know, it's not like somebody's sitting around thinking, wow, you know, I, I really have this, like, overwhelming need for meaning. I mean, I guess maybe they are, but, <laughs> but I think it's, it's often, you know, more subconscious than, um, than kind of laying it out would, would imply. Um, and so what then happens is they find a narrative to explain, uh, their place in the world, to explain the need, to also explain how to fill it. Um, and, and then there's a network, which is, uh, I think that, uh, the, the researchers refer to it as like an epistemic authority or something like that. But essentially, um, you know, a network, which can mean literally people, but can also, again, mean like an online ecosystem of information or whatever, where the narrative gets reinforced and reinforced. So, um, so it's, it's not the kind of thing where like, there's a need, you find the narrative and then there's the network. It's, it's a more, um, sort of like, uh, circular nourishment, I guess, where it's like the network is validating the fact that you have this need, the narrative is helping you fill it. Um, and the network is also like reinforcing the fact that the narrative is, is right and good. Um, and another thing that the researchers talk about is how when the need, whatever, again, the need is, so let's say, you know, to have, to have meaning or whatever, um, is so big that people also start to engage in what they what the researchers call untethered behaviors so like things they might not have done before um but you know whatever it takes to fill this need fulfill this narrative um they start to engage in that and so um untethered behaviors can in the context of hate mean using slurs or committing violence or um you know, even just, I think, like engaging again in that, in that online ecosystem in a way that maybe people hadn't felt comfortable doing before or hadn't thought to do before. Um, and I remember reading this, 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 uh, research paper and being like, oh my gosh, this is such a helpful framework because you can apply it to individual stories and you can start to see how their radicalization happened. Um, and I mean, it's, it's rudimentary in its own way, obviously. Um, but I think that's kind of part of the point because the thing about radicalization is that it's hyper individualized, like no two people wind up, you know, a neo-Nazi or a supporter of the alt-right or whatever for exactly the same reasons. Um, but if you look at these, these fundamentals, they exist. Um, and I think that that's so important. Um, and certainly it was critical for me in figuring out how to tell their stories. Um, yeah. And then, the, you know, the thing, I, this is something I unpack in the Karina section. Um, and again, I think that, you know, Karina, who was very generous with her time and uh, was a very like helpful source and, and willing subject, she was also uh, very blunt about that period of her life. And so I think there, it, her story was the one where it was the easiest to map 
the need narrative network framework onto her story. Um, and, uh, and so that, you know, really helped, I don't know, uh, elucidate the framework, um, in a way. Hmm. And I know you got to get out of here shortly, so I'll just, no, you're uh, fine. You're fine. <laughs> pepper- yeah. Um, so also the, uh, of course, at the, at the center of the white nationalism and the alt-right movement are a lot of charismatic male figures. Um, yeah. but of course your instincts were, it can't all be male. And of course the name of the book is sisters in hate. So why, why is it so important for the, for the movement to live uh, in order for it to live? Uh, women play a huge role in, in the, the growth of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a baseline of, you know, it's a pronatal movement uh, where, you know, if, if the fate of the white race is at stake, then women are, necessary because they have to have some babies um and so that's like a super baseline way of thinking about gender in the movement but it, it really does matter um because they you know hold that purpose very dear the women of the movement do um but then i think that there's also um well a couple of different things like women are seen as you know keepers of communities keepers of families keepers of, of history um, you know, again, like the way that women are in so many walks of life, um, they, they fill really similar roles um, in in the far right. They're just hype, in, in a hyper traditional way. Um, but they're they're key, you know, from that sort of uh, internal standpoint. Um, they're also the most important symbols of the movement. So this idea that, you know, white women are under threat, that their ability to have children is under threat, that, um, you know, their purity might be violated. Um, you know, they kind of, they, they are like the beacon that the white nationalist movement holds up, uh, and, you know, claims to be fighting for, uh, you know, the, the 14 words, which is this famous or infamous, um, white nationalist slogan um, is basically, you know, we must secure a future for women and children. Um, and that's, that's, you know, women as like the ultimate symbols. And of course, children are in there too, and we would not have children without women. So, um, but then I think there's another really, really important layer of this. And I think that this is probably the thing that I found scariest is that women in the movement can, first of all, serve to uh, deny the hypermisogyny of the space simply by saying, look, here I am. Like, why would I ever, you know, want to engage with men who hate women? Like, that's just silly. <laughs> um, and so they can, you know, raise their hand and, and people will say, oh, well, interesting. Yeah, you're right. You're a woman. You're there. Um, okay. You know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about the hypermisogyny. I'm really reducing this down to like dumb people having conversations, but Um, but you get the, (laughs) you get the idea. Um, and so, you know, they can kind of serve as that almost like a shield against those accusations. Uh, and then the other thing that they can do and, and certainly do nowadays online, um, is serve as these bridges to the mainstream, um, because they can say, you know, I'm a mother, you're a mother, um, or like, I'm a sister, you're a sister, like, you know, look at the things that we have in common. I just, 
I just really care about, you know, my kids going to the best schools possible. Don't you? Or, you know, I just care about my community being safe. Don't you? And this is all like the language that, you know, is a part of so many conversations around so many issues in the United States. And um, they can serve as connectors to the mainstream um, with regard to those various issues. Um, And then, of course, you know, they will make race more explicit in whatever their conversations are about schools or neighborhoods or, you know, just national borders or whatever it may be. But but they are able to kind of find that common ground with like mainstream white women um, in a way that. I don't know, men just aren't as successful at. Um, and if, if they are the common ground, I think also often has to do more with uh, like a sense of being embattled or a sense of being um, angry or whatever. Um, and with women, it, it can cover a, a more nuanced series of bases, if you will. Um, so I think that that's an incredibly important role that they play. And they'll, they'll outright say it like, with Lana, um, the the third woman in the book, she has said in speeches, you know, uh, because women are soft, they can get away with saying hard things. Um, and she's also been told in podcasts by other far right supporters, men, you know, you can say things I can't like you can basically like you can connect with people in a way that I can't. Um, and I think that that is a very uh, underappreciated aspect of the far right, um, the ways that these women can, you know, find their way into conversations about everything from, um, you know, homeschooling to uh, resistance to vaccines to, uh, you know, neighborhood watches to, um, you know, all these different things. Uh, so that's, that's to me, maybe the scariest role that they play. And as a, a you know liberal feminist journalist, <laughs> how hard was it for you to resist pushing pushing back and taking the bait? Oh my gosh, so hard. Um, I mean, I so I made a pact with myself very early on that I was not going to argue with my subjects um, because I knew, based on you know having watched a lot of their content and having engaged with you know a few of them, that uh, arguing would not help. Um, arguing was would get into a you, you can't argue with a bad faith actor right like when when they're arguing if if you try to cite data or whatever and they just tell you your data's like made up or you know something along those lines like you're you're at a dead end already and they want to pull you um, into a rabbit hole where you start accepting the conversation on their terms to a certain extent um, and I didn't want to do that so I told myself I wasn't going to argue and for the most part I, I think I succeeded. Um, but at the same time, uh, I was telling someone this the other day, a friend, there are a handful of mostly waiters and waitresses <laughs> in different parts of the United States who, after I was in a really tough interview, um, or not even not even necessarily an interview, just like I had spent my entire day, you know, watching YouTube videos uh, of these people saying things that were just out, not, not just like, Again, it's it's a combination of both. Oh my god, I cannot believe they just used that language. But then also, no, that's just patently false, <laughs> you know. And so you have like two kind of like your your like ethical indignation and then like your your you know uh, intellectual indignation all at once. Um, and I would uh, I would you know go get a drink or do whatever, um, go get dinner, and I'd be like, so hi, you don't know me, but I would really love to talk to you about my day. <laughs> and I think part of it. 
Um, there was actually this one day in Seattle where I had a really tough reporting day and I was like, I'm going to treat myself to a really nice sushi dinner. And so I went and I sat at like the omakase bar or whatever. And there was a couple on one side that was there for vacation and a couple on the other side that was there for a birthday or an anniversary or something. And then me right in the middle sandwiched. And after like one glass of wine, I was like, friends, you don't know me, but I'm going to tell you all about my day. And what's crazy is that people were always so like generous and actually interested. And oftentimes like I, I, you know, things came out of those conversations that were, were valuable for the book. Um, But I think that that's a very long way of saying, you know, I found ways to get the frustration I felt from not arguing out. Um, And then certainly my my poor, poor husband has heard me rant endlessly. Um, So uh, thank you to my husband and the various waiters, waitresses, patrons, bartenders who were were there for me in my times of need. Well, there's that Krakauer quote that you cite. It was like uh, a narcissistic sense of self-assurance displaces all doubt. So you just can't argue. You you just can't. You can't. There's no way that you can. Um, And and if you do, um, I mean, of course you can, I guess, but it's just it's never going to end in a satisfying way um, because they are coming to the table on a different level than you are and like with just a different worldview with different data with different it's not just opinions um and so arguing ultimately if i had argued i would have gotten less information because we you know would have gotten stuck you know know, yeah arguing about like black on white crime and like what statistics actually show and then suddenly you know my time that i have with them is up and it's like oh well crap i didn't get to talk to you about any number of things so uh so yeah i just bit my tongue and and then talked nice uh, wait staff's ears off. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, the, the, the book is just the, the leanness of the writing. It's tight. It's, it's great. You tell such a great story about such a deep, dark and dark material and important stuff for us to hear at this time, especially as we head towards a very pivotal, maybe the most important election in a hundred years. Right. Who knows? <laughs> um, so in any case, say we thank you so much for the work and uh you know for all you do with atavist and of course this whole wonderful book that you that you wrote so uh thank you and um best of luck with it thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure hey you cnfer fellow cnfer thanks for listening i mean that some people say that perfunctorily but I really mean it. I'm feeling a bit down of late, and it's nice to know that I get to have this interaction with you. I don't have many people to talk to, so at least I get to hang with you at this time of the week. Thing is, the analytics tell me nobody listens to the end of the show, so these words are likely bouncing off the wall and hitting me right in the face. So, I guess I'll just say this, if you can do interview. Goodbye.